Costello, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Kaylee Costello. We're joined today by David Breer, the CEO and co-founder of 11FS and one of the hosts of the FinTech Insider Podcast. 11FS is a challenger consultancy that helps clients create innovative strategies, build new propositions, and launch new ventures in the UK, US, Europe, and Asia. In today's episode, David shares his insights on three topics. Firstly, we discuss how digital technologies and fintechs have unleashed innovation in commercial banking. We talk about the unmet needs of SMEs and why David expects to see a transition to more service-based models in the future. Secondly, we talk about the banking battlefield. The competitive landscape in banking is shifting from being about the number of customers that you can acquire to a landscape where digital is increasingly important. We discuss strategies that incumbent banks can take to stay competitive. Finally, we discussed how fintech and financial ecosystems differ across different global markets. We spoke about the impact of generational and cultural differences and why David expects there to be different winners in different regions. Hi, David. Welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Where are you calling in from today? I'm over in the UK, uh, a very suddenly wintry vibed UK, I have to say. It's uh, been a real shock to the system. I guess that's how you know it's November. So the first topic we want to discuss today is commercial banking. 11FS recently released a report on how digital banking ecosystems are reshaping commercial banking. To start with, can you give us an overview of the unmet financial needs of commercial businesses? Yeah, I mean, how long have you got? The uh, the, the SME space is, uh, I mean, we talk about being underserved, overcharged or overwhelmed, and actually uh, the SME space is, is probably the, the largest category of, of underserved people uh, and, and slice of financial services globally. Um, I mean, it's a funny one having researched this a lot in various different geos, but equally having actually built one of these organizations. So I ran as the the CEO of uh, Metal, a challenger bank uh, in the UK, uh, we built for, for NatWest. Uh, I mean, that is a, a market that actually has been really struggling to get to grips with fundamentally serving the real problems. Uh, and the SME market is often treated like it is a an offshoot of retail banking, you know, giving people a uh, the access to an account or a you know a checkbook or whatever you know, but actually nobody runs their business in that way. Nobody runs a business uh, looking retrospectively at the transactions that you've actually made, um, and this is particularly a pain point for SMEs. You know, nobody starts a business to do small business banking like they start a business to uh, sell cupcakes or whatever it is that they want to do as a business right so build banks whatever like what we do at 11fs so actually the the market is by nature robbing time from the people that they serve away from actually building their business there's this whole balance between working in the business versus working on the business uh when you're starting a you know a business for yourself and and actually the financial services of the business is the absolute last thing that anybody really wants to be spending time. Uh, I mean, if you look globally, um, why has fintech had an impact in the SME space? Um, first and foremost, the problem that people face into, you know, the the job to be done is just getting a bank account for starters. You know, actually, when you look at the ease that it is to, you know, in places like the UK, register a company with companies house. Uh, you know, do all of those pieces that you need to to legally be a business. You can win work. You can get all those things going. It takes you longer to get a bank account than it does either of those things, which is crazy. So, um, you know, first and foremost, the underserved job is gaining access to financial systems in that sense and uh, to to be really able to operate as an organization. It's why people like Tide in the UK have done an amazing job. I think they've got 
something near to six or seven percent of the market now, which is amazing, just because they've got a three, four minute account opening process. Beyond that, the needs of SMEs are incredibly varied. I mean, the the growth uh, areas that businesses go through from having no employees to you know having an employee or having a an accountant or a financial director i mean all of these things break traditional banking in terms of we've been conditioned to not allow anybody to have access you know username password access to the bank account but try running a business and giving your fd access to your bank i mean it's uh it's 14 forms and four weeks in a branch you know it's uh, incredibly complex to do these things and do these things in a level of control so uh, we really think this is the number one underserved market because actually the complexities of running a business and actually the distraction of financial services to running that business is really significant. Do you think banks are ready to embrace digital innovation to meet these needs? And if not, what's standing in their way? I think the challenge to that is it sort of flies in the face of traditional financial services, really. I mean, when we talk about... um, all of these things. I mean, giving your FD access, well, that's not a product. That's a that's a service, right? Or actually, look, when you get to 30 people and you want people to be able to uh, spend and do expenses, well, actually giving them access to spends, that's not traditional banking because if I give my FD my password, well, what stops them transferring all the money away? You know, I know you have rigorous interview processes, but you know, things happen, right? So so I, I think the the challenge is is that all of these things that we're talking about that are essentially are things that enhance the ability for businesses to run their business more effectively actually are services, they're not products. So to your point around a big organizations ready to face into this battle, I think actually what they need to admit, I, I'm a big believer, you know, any first step of any program is always admitting there's a problem. I think actually the first step is the organization recognizing that actually they are a financial services provider, not a financial product provider. And actually when you get beyond just thinking, well, I'm a lender and I do credit cards and I've got current accounts, to actually we orchestrate financial services to help our businesses be more successful, then I think they can get to a point where they can understand, well, actually how do you provide these? Because most people business run off a weird spreadsheet or a mental hack or a two hours on a Sunday where you sit down with all your receipts, if banks can help people run their businesses more effectively, ultimately we're serving, you know, the biggest population of SMEs, the single trader, the, you know, two to three employees. Actually, that in most geos makes up 95% of the SME market in any uh, particular geography, which is huge. So we're talking about fundamental shifts here in gdp you know this isn't just a oh wouldn't it be nice if they had better services it's like this is critical to the any industry any international setup to allow businesses to be successful so are they ready for that i'm not sure they are um but definitely they're searching for it i mean if you kind of look at any market people really only respond to the the problem when there's a threat to it um and actually when we've seen People like Zero, people like accounting, you know, various different accounting packages. We're seeing financial services, uh, fintech players start to aim at slices of these opportunities. Um, I think actually now the the water is being turned up. You know, it's getting warmer in each of these markets. There's more competitive pressures. Uh, it feels like the time is now to to really respond. 
Absolutely. And when you think about the core digital technologies that banks are using, where do you see as the biggest gaps between what they are using and what they should be using? I'd say people kind of think about this one a little bit the wrong way around. The stuff you do for your customers is really important. And I know this sort of, it flies slightly in the face of um, common wisdom, which is, you know, uh, the customer comes first. I really don't think it is the case when you're thinking about building a service. I actually think your employees come first because essentially your employees are creating the capabilities for your customers, right? So if you're basically holding, you know, I was going to be kind and say one arm behind their back, but if you're holding both arms behind the back of your employees, uh, inhibiting them being able to move fast and make things happen, then well, by nature of that, your customer service, your customer capabilities are always going to suffer. Um, I often say, you know, it's not what you do, it's the way that you do it that is critical in, in these markets. And actually, if you look at players like Tide or Monzo or Revolut, it's not really that they've got some, you know, amazing strategists who have come up with things that have never been done before and, oh my God, aren't they innovative? Actually, the reality is, is that they're just brilliant at going from a good idea to putting it into the hands of customers really, really quickly. Now, that's part operational capability and that's part technology infrastructure and the things that they've put in place so they've got you know event-driven architecture with microservices and da, da 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 but really the other part of that is that just culturally they're set up to do small things quickly test and learn with their their customers fundamentally understand what works and what doesn't work uh, and evolve um, and i think this actually is the almost the dichotomy that we've got now between really really big organizations waterfall business models uh, annual budgeting processes you know project thinking and small agile players who are able to deliver capabilities into the market quicker than actually the big incumbents can schedule the meeting to talk about it so and i think that's where really we're going to see the the separation of organizations at this point um i've been saying this for a couple of years now but actually you know starling and monzo started uh, and built capability that makes them look like a traditional bank. But actually, you know, it, it sort of starts slowly that change and it seems like it's very gradual, but then all of a sudden there's dramatic changes happening in the market. This is why they can be investing in, you know, insurance and investments and pensions all at the same time, because they've spent the time to build the foundations of a modern day digital business. And one of the other ways in your report that you mentioned that digital businesses serve customers' needs better was through sort of partnering with each other. What are some of the most interesting examples you've seen of businesses partnering with each other to provide a stronger solution? Yeah, it's um, it, again, it's a it's a uh, a strange kind of point of emotional intelligence to go, hey, we're brilliant at this thing, and actually, we're going to rely on other people to be great at this thing, you know. So, uh, I mean, zero again are also a very good example of this uh, from from my mindset, which is. I mean, what's to stop those guys building a bank? Like almost nothing, right? But actually, what would be the benefit to them if they could just orchestrate all of these things together? So the marketplace that they have and their ability to pull in payments providers or service providers, lending products, uh, credit card products, different things, to be able to distribute them to their bases. For me, that's a really great example. You know, using Stripe, using TransferWise, using these players to solve real problems for customers. And actually, the, the ability then to will understand what works and and focus on the problem at hand for customers rather than necessarily just your revenue line, your business model that you've got there yourself. Um, there's many other examples where organizations, you know, particularly 
where we're talking about you know more b2b businesses more you know api driven organizations uh i mean wise and stripe are always the the standout there um they are very focused about the the mono line capability that they want to solve uh, and actually, I mean, having spoken to people like Patrick Collinson, they're very focused as an organization from a, a cultural perspective as well, is that uh, they really know they only want to really solve customers' problems and earn the right to solve more. Uh, and actually, you know, when you look at the size of the business that they've got to, it's um, clearly not a bad business strategy. Yeah, absolutely. And in your report, you also talk about new commercial business model archetypes from well-known archetypes like Baz and Embedded Finance to archetypes that some listeners may be less familiar with, for example, Service Orchestrator. Which of these archetypes are you the most excited about? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just happy we're not just talking about net interest margin and, uh, you know, the, the sort of traditional models of financial services, because actually in that world where essentially integration and orchestration of, of providers to solve problems for people... I mean, this is a this is a model that is new to financial services, but every other industry operates in a very similar way. And actually, if you look at the mobile phone handset manufacturing, I mean, what chips are in there? The lens is being produced by who? I mean, does it matter? Actually, you know, the orchestration, the pulling of those things together, the services and the software that that runs on those things, that's the bit that we buy into as a as an end consumer and, and an operator of those things in that way. So. So whether it's, you know, Baz and we've got, you know, various different players of various different sizes starting to offer, you know, core infrastructure. And when I say core, I don't just mean core banking. I mean, all the way through to the customer interface in terms of what's there. I mean, that is a, a huge step forward. Um, I think it does kind of call into question what is the place of big FIs in in that space? Because, you know, really what is, what is the strategic advantage of being big in this market? Um, you know, Yes, from a balance sheet perspective, it's it's a good thing. But actually, you know, for all of the things that we've just said, make small players really successful. And, you know, it's the um, Clayton Christensen's sort of innovator's dilemma, right? Will the uh, the uh, the startups get to scale before the incumbents learn how to innovate? I think what we're saying here is that the innovation that we really need to see in those big incumbents is their ability to actually deliver. You know, delivering in a digital world is a very different thing than just delivering your PL responsibility and your you know your annual uh, report of your financial performance to your investors every year so I think actually it's an interesting sort of point in this market which is uh what is the strategic advantage of being a fully regulated licensed bank in 2023 and beyond and in choosing partners, do companies generally have a preference for finding many partners that each do one thing really well, as opposed to finding one partner that meets all of their needs? Yes and no. Uh, I mean, it really sort of depends on the size of the player that we're talking about. The sort of difference between bank as a service that is a you know underlying technological capability and more broad sort of bank as a box hey, it just does everything and therefore, you know, I can outsource responsibility for some of these things. It, it sort of depends on the size of the player that's, that's making the decision. And also the maybe even the um, technological sophistication of that organization in terms of the responsibilities that they really want to bring on board. Um, in many instances, what we're seeing is, uh, again, quite a, a bifurcation of the market. Actually, if they have a, a good level of technical understanding, it's actually more like the equivalent of people who like to build kit cars. You know, actually, 
they're really into picking what the engine and the gearbox and the suspension and all of these things are doing but actually they know that putting those things together themselves is a bit of a labor of love in terms of making that happen uh, whereas on the other side actually whether it's um smaller fis you know building societies etc actually we're seeing people wanting to buy those things lock stock to make those things happen when it when it comes down to like smes themselves uh, again no we're weird you know like you know we're having this conversation now we fixate on fintech stuff and financial services stuff you know steve who starts the hairdresser down the you know down the road like he doesn't care if it's you know tide or wise or stripe or none of these things make any sense to him in any way shape or form what he cares about is being able to run his business most effectively uh and actually i think the the organizations that actually either make them you know better off as in make them financially better off or give them back time are the ones that can really establish themselves from a hierarchical perspective um i'd say for smes the idea of universal banking i think is a is a dead thing you know we should just call it and you know the time of death is is now um because essentially the idea that you just go to whatever high street bank is and then you take whatever lending product they can give you and you take whatever credit card they can give you and you know and that is it people are more open to being more savvy now and shopping around for those things to to make sure they're actually getting the outcomes that they really want to switching to our next topic so one area that you're passionate about is what you've called the banking battlefield firstly can you talk us through this landscape like what are the two main drivers in the market that are shaping the players futures the idea for us is is that uh, similar to what I was saying earlier on around the innovators dilemma, you know, the Clayton Christiansons, you know, will uh, the big incumbent organizations learn what innovation really is and not in its, you know, shiny lab and, you know, making the board feel comfortable, but in the truest sense of making change happen in the organization. Uh, will that happen quicker than the disruptors in the market will actually get to a level of scale that truly disrupts them in terms of the uh, the control of customers or uh, fundamentally their P&Ls, I guess. Um, and actually for us, what we've seen from 2010 to now is like quite a, a significant change in really, A, what the objective actually is, you know, where is, where are big financial services organizations going, but also because of the level of disruption that we've seen globally in the regulatory landscape, the level of expectation from customers, uh, you know, and actually fundamentally the competitive landscape there as well then all of those things are leading to a much more complex and much more chaotic landscape. And, and this is what we talk about when we, uh, when we talk about the banking battlefield. Um, because ultimately, you know, it is a battlefield, whether uh, there are many organizations that don't really look outside of their own four walls. But, but out there, the competition is getting, getting hectic. If you kind of look at the UK market, that was kind of the point, right? You know, the, the competition mandate for the regulator was there to spur you know, real competition in the market, allowing new players to come in, allowing them to gain regulatory access, which turns up the heat because the the theory really is that if there's a, any market that has great competition in it, well, actually competing for customer leads to a better outcome for customers as a whole. Uh, and, and so have we seen, right? Um, so, you know, I'd say back in the day, the only axes that really mattered was the amount of customers that you could acquire. And when there was, you know, a blue one versus a red one versus another red one, and nobody was really doing anything in the market, uh, then actually nobody really had to compete very hard for those things. The advent of 
of digital and actually that you know introduction of another axis has has fundamentally shifted you know that's the old um you know ice hockey thing of skate where the puck is going rather than where it is right you know the puck is and the puck being the industry is very much hurtling towards digital and it's funny there'll be people who listen to this is like well my bank's done digital we've got an app and a website and stuff it's like that's not digital you know digital is all the things that we talked about when we're talking about operating model you know the unit economics that go around that your ability to deliver digitally deliver things to your customer that is digital for me so this balancing act then of well you know big incumbents with most of the customers in any market and these fintechs with you know not many of the customers in any market at the beginning that has grown and shaped and changed in such an amazing way you know we've seen new bank acquire what is it 60 million customers in in uh, brazil that's crazy right you know we've seen revolut go from this tiny little thing in the uk to everywhere i go you know people seem to have revolut cards you know we've got some of the biggest fintechs acquiring other giant you know so and and beyond that we've seen you know google and apple and facebook and you know Alipay and all of these things acquire and and land into the banking battlefield, albeit maybe not fully regulated, maybe not. So the the challenge really is is that where you sit on that banking battlefield, whether you're a big incumbent bank or a small bank or a you know a big tech player or a, a non bank like uh, you know Shopify wanting to kind of you know disrupt the market and distribute financial services, or or whether you're a fintech who has the aspiration to take over the world. Your strategy is very different depending on where you are and where you start from. The beautiful thing about it, and we use this as a, you know, a proxy for explaining it, is sometimes you've got to kind of take the needle off the record. Um, what we're seeing is different players start from different positions. You know, a lot of the big incumbent banks now are taking a strategy to build their own disruptor because going back to my point earlier on, it isn't about actually well how can i overcome 50 years of legacy technology and culture and thinking uh well actually the way to do it might not be to do it the way to do it might be to fundamentally start from a different place um i often sort of tell the the joe i live in uh, norwich in norfolk so everybody sounds like drunk pirates around here to me in terms of the accent uh, but actually like uh, there's a joke that says if you pull over in swarfham and ask the the nice guy on a bike the direction to backton well, what he'll say to you is, well, I wouldn't start from here if I was trying to get there. Um, and what we've seen with many of the big FI players, I mean, look at Chase in the UK. I mean, Chase, I mean, to us is a little challenger bank. Actually, if you're a US in the US right now listening to this, you know, Chase is 60 million customers, right? Um, you know, if you look at Mox with Standard Chartered in Hong Kong, you know, Standard Chartered is a gigantic global bank. Mox is a little challenger bank in Hong Kong. So, but why are businesses doing that? Actually, what they're doing is they're building new things in new ways to, to deliver new outcomes. They're building new cultures and new technology stacks in order to be able to repeatedly, repeatedly get things through to their customers in cost-effective ways that actually the big incumbent organization can't do. So if you can marry innovation and scale, you're going to win in any market. Uh, and really, this is what the big incumbent organizations are doing to try and counteract the effects that fintechs have by taking slices and slices of customer base uh, and increasingly taking slices of profitability as well.
To what extent have these big banks been able to get to digital and not just digitize? Like, is it just a handful of them that have, you know, been building their own disruptor that have been able to achieve this? Or what are we seeing? Yeah, so I I think, um, again, there's not many weeks that go by where I don't talk to somebody senior at a bank and go, yeah, you get it, you know? Uh, You know, like, they're not crazy. They're not sort of fingers in their ears and hoping it all goes away. But actually what we're talking about is hard. You know, me and you could start a business tomorrow and talk about it and as agree it and be like, cool, like your strategy, I'm financing HR, whatever. Like, you know, and we get it and we can agree it really quickly. Trying to do that with like 300,000 people in your organization and cultural transformation and moving technological revolution and, you know, moving all of these things forward, it's difficult, right? So, so I think we're kind of in that, we're in a weird place. I, I think the the big banks are really try, trying to make these changes happen. I think in many instances, they're in the middle. You know, um, there's light at either end of the tunnel. And actually, for some of them, it's getting scary and they're going to go back to where they were. But for others, they're doubling down and really pushing for the other side of that mountain. So I think we're really going to start to see some big organizations. I mean, again, look at Chase. You know, Chase is not just about having a you know, a little bank in England for, for JP Morgan, this is fundamental to their strategy in order to to know about how to run an organization in 2023, right? They get finance, they get banking, they get balance sheets, and that's great. Now, if you can couple that with understanding how to run a tech business, you know, game's over really in terms of competing with that, right? But equally, we're now at a point where, you know, back to the point earlier on, I mean, Monzo's doing investments and pensions and they've just announced insurance and wow like so it feels like all of these things are changing the speed in which the industry is moving you know again it used to be a three-year investment cycle and you know we digitized these things and we took out people we took out paper we you know we got rid of premises and you know shut down branches but actually it kind of feels like the the metronome of the industry is ticking at a completely different tone now than it ever has done before. And all of that is because people are increasingly understanding what I said earlier on, which is it's not what you do, it's the way that you do it. And when you think about the large neobanks and fintechs that are around today, do you consider them to be sort of truly digital companies that are building with today's technology or more kind of starting from a place of like offering a digitized solution? I think... There are definitely organizations that are better banking, you know, and actually, I mean, if you look at, uh, if you look at Starling, Starling is, is a great example of the things that they built actually are evolutionary steps on the direction of the strategy in which Anne and the team, you know, set out right at the beginning. There's always these things that you've got to take with you. You know, there's always customers, right? You know, you've got to take customers along these evolutionary steps to get to these different places i mean if you look at the first um the first cars looked like horses and carts just with an engine in it because they didn't want to freak people out in the street because they were like oh my god what, where's the horse you know like so you know you've got to kind of you've got to take customers along in this course of direction because first you've got to solve for them better the needs that they already have in order to then surface the needs that they don't even know that they've got, right? Uh, and it goes back to the conversation with SMEs as well. I mean, you know, actually the best packages for accountancy, or, I mean, let, let's say me and you are married. It went well. We've gone from being business 
partners to being partners now. But let, let's say that we're married. Actually, what we want is somebody to run our finances for us, right? So if you had five great people running our financial services lives for us, well, they would be making sure that our long-term needs are thought about, that our you know short-term goals are being planned for, that actually we're saving enough money from our salaries each month to to do those things, and that we're enjoying life because we're getting that holiday, you know. So all of those things that are uh, eminently very solvable problems, actually nobody is really supporting people with. I think the next generation, what we're going to see in financial services, is that service element. It is looking using the uh the the real-time intelligent contextual you know services to solve real problems because whether it's an sme whether it's a ultra high net worth person with millions and millions of pounds in the bank or whether it's somebody just getting into financial services for the first time because they've just turned 16 or whatever nobody really knows what good looks like uh, and using the power of that data, using the power of automation to make these things happen for people, um, I feel like that's where the next generation will come. And, and who's best place to do that? Are the the people who can move fast and make things happen and have very low unit economic costs with it regards to their infrastructure and their technology? Kind of my money's on that side. But at the same time, you can never rule out people with crazy amounts of customer numbers and crazy amounts of investment to make, right? And this really is the, you know, this is the banking battlefield that's shaping out. This is the war now. It's uh, it's not just about um, customers anymore. It's about capabilities. And tech players like Apple and Google have made strides in recent years in like, the financial services space. Do you see a world where they are holding the primary banking relationship? You see what Elon Musk came out with recently and said, look, you know, X is going to be a platform to not just facilitate payments, but mean you don't need a bank, you know? And I'm like, okay, what do you mean by... And he's got a good track record, right, with PayPal and stuff that he's done before. I think it's an interesting challenge, really, because when we sort of say about scale, you know, if I say HSBC in most of parts of the world, people will recognize the brand, right? Uh, you know, similar for Bank of America in most of the world or say Lloyd's Banking Group to anybody in the UK and they'll recognize that brand, right? But equally, actually customers are, are quite naive when it comes to brand recognition. You know, look at us all. I mean, most of people in the UK buy insurance based on the fact that they get a free Meerkat toy, you know what I mean? Like, so actually the ability to get brand recognition is only down to your ability to spend above the line on a marketing campaign. Who do people trust? I think customers trust big incumbent organizations not to disappear with all their money, but they don't trust them to do the right thing for them. Um, do people trust Apple? Uh, maybe. Like, actually, I mean, if they're willing to pay 1500 quid for a new iPhone every 18 months, then maybe they trust them more than they do their banks. But, but I think what Apple brings, though, is they solve problems. You know, they, they are solving problems for customers, They've created desirability around the things that they do. Um, and big incumbent banks are not good at doing that. Fintechs, on the other hand, I mean, if you look at the, you know, the the latest capability that, you know, Monzo released for their investments, they had, I think it was like 150,000 people in a queue. You know, this is a this is a financial service product. And there was people like in a queue for it. You know, I mean, they've they've created a, a brand that I think has a different level of trust. And therefore, actually, well, if they do it, then it's good for me, I think is the kind of mentality. Um, so I, I feel like the um, the challenge will be, 
do people trust Apple more than they trust HSBC? Maybe. Um, are Apple better at building software, therefore services that will solve problems for them than HSBC? Yes. Like, you know, categorically, yes. Um, so is it likely that financial services increasingly becomes embedded more and more into operating systems? Yes. And and therefore, really, do Google and, uh, and Apple and uh, Samsung have a very large part to play in financial services going forward? I mean, well, we're carrying around, you know, supercomputers in our pocket. Absolutely. The third topic that we wanted to cover today relates to the work that 11FS has done with organizations across the globe. We'd love to get your insights on how these financial ecosystems differ across regions. So to start with, firstly, thinking about the tech, does the approach to tech change from region to region? Yeah, sure. Bizarrely, I'd say actually the technology is very consistent. Um, and, and actually, I mean, there are a few caveats to that, really, from a from a regional perspective, which is, uh, I mean, if you look at kind of like the revolution, really, that's happened from a fintech perspective and therefore uh, the competition that's been created, that's predominantly been a, you know, the seed, the, the first domino in any market has always been the regulator. Uh, it's why, you know, the FCA, the PRA, uh, HKMA over in Hong Kong, you know, MAS in Singapore, um, you know, the changes in those organizations in order to uh, create the right environment for a fintech to flourish or, and actually the tension to existing incumbent players to to have to step their game up. Um, that has been kind of first and foremost. And, and with that comes then actually uh, openness to to technology where we sort of talk about technology and financial services, we're not talking about, well, hey, like, what's your policy for digital assets? We're like, no, do you let cloud adoption happen? And these things are, are so fundamental to to change in that space because, you know, no fintech in the world has ever decided first and foremost where their three data centers are going to be, right? So, uh, you know, you actually are using, you know, you're using AWS or GCP by default, right? So I think... What they're trying to do by regulation fundamentally shifting in each of those geos is create a, a playing field uh, and, and a level of cultural transformation within those regulators to allow technology to flourish, to allow uh, startups to flourish in that way as well. But when it comes to the the place that big banks have got themselves to when it comes to legacy technology or the scale of the problem when it comes to facing into 50 different monolithic structures to run by all of the all of the pain everybody knows and uh, and loves deeply i'm sure that's really consistent um actually how you could address it though is very geographically specific um the thing that's probably usually more dramatically different is is actually the customers and it seems and it's so stupid to say that out loud i mean we've been so lucky to do you know jobs to be done frameworks um which jobs to be done for anybody who doesn't know is a a great methodology for getting to grips with actually like the real brutal realities of day-to-day lives for people. It's not about going, um, hey, we've designed a new thing. Do you like the blue one or do you like the red one? It's like, that's not customer research, right? Actually, what you find in any geo is that financial products are very similar. So the underlying financial instruments of savings accounts and credit cards and current accounts and you know all of these things are very, very similar. Um, and actually, the context of you know mortgage rates are going up everywhere, and 
uh, you know, interest rates are suddenly a thing and there's this cost of living challenge everywhere and utility prices are going, you know, that's sort of relatively consistent across the world. You know, that's sort of happening everywhere. But actually what you kind of find in the middle there is market context, market conditions uh, create people using those things in different ways. And that's, I mean, in some instances, geographical thing. In some instances, it's a generational thing as well. And actually where different people in different locations get their their education from, you know, are you more influenced uh, from a societal perspective from your friends or, you know, TV, or are you more uh, impacted by generations of family? Like, and actually it's been really fascinating to see the differences there. I mean, if you look at Hong Kong, you know, Hong Kongers pride themselves on being savvy when making financial decisions. You know, uh, you know, being moxie is why mox is called mox because essentially being savvy with financial decisions is a is a whole thing. So there's a real pride in staying ahead of that game and knowing which credit card to use in order to get the benefits of these things and that thing and da 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 da. da. Uh, whereas actually in other geos, uh, I mean the UK market, the UK market is we've been brought up with this stiff upper lip and told never to talk about your finances with other people. Do you know what I mean? So so actually understanding those things and asking for those cultural differences that actually come to the front when it, with, with regards to how financial services actually manifest itself as well. And it's been, like I say, it's been, whether it's sub-Saharan Africa or Nebraska, like uh, it's been amazing to see how people really interact with financial services. We spoke before about how in the banking battlefield, there's this axis, which is the sophistication of digital services. When you think about the financial ecosystems across regions, is there anything you'd call out about where the financial institutions and fintechs generally sit on this axis? Similarly to the generational point, I'd say that uh, fintechs are sort of being born into uh, a world where actually you are you are sophisticated with your technology by design. I mean, it's a similar thing that we're, we're sort of seeing in the the car manufacturing industry. You know, Tesla has come in and built an electric car from like literally the the tires up. You know, I mean, like so. You know, the the systems that it has are so integrated that essentially anything control anything can control anything right so you know you can sit in the car and your weight sensor on your seat is determining the power in which your airbags go off you know and like that that level of sophistication or or even the uh your ability to control the temperature from your phone you know whereas actually if you're taking a combustion engine car and electrifying it you know you're you're taking the engine out and figuring out how to put a thing in those systems are never as integrated as you would do if you're designing them and building them from first principles. So, you know, fintechs are being born into a digital age. They're they're digital from their DNA up. You know, their their technology, their culture, their operations, and everything that really goes with it is about making things happen rather than stopping them from from taking place. Uh, and that's the and you know going back to that it's not what you do it's the way that you do it um you know many organizations look at you know a features arms race you know the big banks look at the fintechs and try and put in place a program for the next two years of work to catch up with card freezing and you know blah 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 but actually by the time they get there the puck is somewhere completely different in the future i think the battle that is going on 
is a an incredibly complex one when it comes to you know the 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 traits of the people that ultimately will be the winners in there you know like we say customers investment potential brand recognition you know all of these things are critical to to being successful in the uh the financial landscape that we're facing into uh and i tell you really i really think it's way too close to call the 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 winner uh, i do think there will be different winners in different regions um as you say the 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 uh big part of that is the regulatory change and actually uh government intervention there as well um i mean i'd look to something like the us market uh as maybe a bad example of this if i'm honest with you which is actually um allowing big incumbent organizations to create structure around things like open banking rather than open banking being centrally managed as a thing well it's always going to skew it towards the incumbent existing players rather than creating an environment that actually allows you know the the ecosystem to flourish in that way um you know not allowing new banking licenses in for such a long period of time in places like canada i really think that's a bad idea because essentially you're just cementing the the existing incumbents uh, place in the system and therefore actually it doesn't really create competition for customers um i do think the challenge for any of these regions and the challenge for any of these big organizations where competition really comes in uh, i mean if you look at other industries where competition happens amongst few players it's a race to the bottom when it comes to a commodity um and nobody nobody wants to be a commodity in a market that actually is increasingly trying to differentiate on service it's a very painful place to be. Uh, look at uh, Vodafone and uh, EE and these guys. I mean, it's not a it's not a high margin industry to play in when essentially everybody's cutting costs in order to to compete. Um, so, you know, it's a fascinating market. Uh, increasingly, is a fascinating market, and um, I think we're very lucky to be working in it today rather than a hundred years ago when actually all they'd be talking about is uh, checks. <laughs> yes, definitely more interesting now. When we look at the regional footprint of fintechs, like there have been a large number of fintechs that have been successful in expanding globally, particularly in sectors where it makes sense to be a global player, such as in payments. However, like many major fintechs have remained country or region specific, I think particularly true for some of the US-based fintechs in sectors like banking and wealth management, um, where, you know, tech and regulatory requirements are a bit more country specific. How do you see this playing out in the future? Yeah, I mean, it's a challenge, isn't it? Even in the US, uh, you're not talking about country, you're talking about state, right? You know, the the, the level of overhead that comes with um, adhering to regulation is is really significant. And actually, the uh, there's a reason why, you know, Wells Fargo has something like 15,000 people just looking at the regulatory approach to, to what they're doing state and state. Um, and actually, I do think this is something, though, that is that is changing. All of the advancements around regulation and what you know, regulating in a digital world means is is shifting that. But there's no doubt it's a barrier to entry for people to to go internationally. Um, I think the the opportunities though, if organizations have good momentum, look at Nubank. I mean, Nubank has absolutely torn up trees in uh in Brazil and now because of that they they can justify uh and garner investment to go across other geographies and we're not talking about you know small geographies but geographies with fundamentally different regulatory approaches different regulators and therefore you know needing different expertise to make that happen um i don't think regulation is the barrier to entry that it used to be 
um, just because of the approach to regulators making it more attractive to go to those markets. Um, so if you look at anywhere that's got a, a gigantic population, uh, I mean, the US, China, India, Pakistan, Southeast Asia, Africa, I mean, like, you know, we're not talking about in any of those places, we're not really talking about single regulators, we're talking about multiple regulators across the piece. Um, but these things get overcome with smart people and, and money. And, you know, there's plenty of investors out there looking for the next big thing to to take over a territory. Um, I do think there is more global commonality when it comes to the way in which regulators are regulating as well. Uh, you know, there's more, far more bodies being set up to, uh, you know, emulate what's happened in um, some of the more innovative geos uh, more globally. Um, and that can only be a good thing in terms of the sort of import export of, um, of financial services. I mean, we, we're all increasingly living a, a more of a global life, aren't we? So, you know, being in a situation where our, our financial services can live a little bit more like we do, um, that's probably not a bad thing. Absolutely. Um, that was all the questions I had for today. So thank you so much for joining us on the show. No worries at all. It's always a pleasure to come and chat. Happy to come back whenever. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. We appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech, where you'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Austria, and until next time, this is your host, Kaylee Costello. Thank you.